You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome you this evening for the inaugural lecture in our 2019-2020 lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories from 1968 to 1999. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that will take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series will analyse game changes in contemporary art, addressing contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and will reflect on the ways these exhibitions have shaped art history and contemporary culture more broadly. To begin with, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Boon traditional custodians uh, and sovereign owners of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past and present, to uh, elders emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Internationally, exhibition histories and the restaging of critical exhibitions has been a significant genre in recent art history and curatorial practice over the past decade or more. In the Australian context, notwithstanding the recent interest in the restaging of historical exhibitions such as The Field, with The Field revisited at the NGV in 2018, and Anne Stevens' reconstruction of one of the early exhibitions of conceptual art in Australia by Ian Byrne, Roger Cutforth, and Mel Ramson at Pinacothica in Melbourne 1969, which was reconfigured as 1969, the black box of conceptual art at the University of Sydney in 2013, and later at the Margaret Lawrence Gallery at the VCA, in the Australian context, the, st the stories and the significance of Australian exhibitions is still a largely unwritten history. ACCA's two-year series will consider 18, 16 projects and exhibitions, bringing together a diverse range of voices in hour-long lectures and conversations involving key protagonists, artists, curators, art critics and historians. In 2019, the program traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of selected significant projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to institutions, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. The Defining Moments uh, Australian Exhibition Histories lecture series wouldn't be possible without the support of a number of partners. I'd like to extend our sincere thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who have been generous, long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series. We're truly grateful for their ongoing commitment and support. We're also very pleased and excited to welcome a new partnership with COVA, the Centre of Visual Art at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the lecture series as research partner. COVA was established in 2018 to facilitate innovative research and collaborative projects with an ambition to become a leader in the field of visual art research within the Asia Pacific region. COVA fosters a diverse and extensive community of artists, scholars, historians, and other thinkers and practitioners to address fundamental questions in art practice, art history, curatorship, arts writing, and cultural management. And we look forward to working with COVA over the next two years and beyond. We're also very grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper, and Triple R. And of course, special thanks to our event partners, the City of Melbourne, CAPI, and the Melbourne Gin Company, and we hope you are enjoying the, your Vineyard Sour, which is the, um, this evening's cocktail um, created by the Melbourne Gin Company. Tonight, we're very excited to launch the series around an extraordinary project that had an indelible impact on our understanding of what art could be. 
and it's a project which has continued to inspire subsequent generations of artists and the wider community. Christo and Jean-Claude's Wrapped Coast, one million square feet, at Little Bay in Sydney in 1968-69, was the first major environmental project by the internationally acclaimed French husband and wife artist team. Described as somewhere between a monument and an event, Wrapped Coast was the inaugural Caldor Public Art Project. Inspired by the success of this project, John Caldor became a pioneer in commissioning ambitious art and curatorial projects dedicated to taking art outside museum walls and transforming public spaces with innovative contemporary art projects in collaboration with the world's leading artists. It's now 50 years since John inaugurated his visionary program. 32 groundbreaking projects have followed, with the most recent Caldor Public Art Project number 34, Assad Raza, Absorption, forthcoming at Carriage Works in Sydney in May. We're delighted to welcome John this evening to inaugurate our lecture series, and we thank him for agreeing to join us from Sydney. John Caldor is a dedicated commissioner, collector, patron, and supporter of contemporary art. He's been collecting and commissioning contemporary art since the early 1960s, and since 1969 has shared his love of art with the Australian public through his series of art projects. In 2011, John gifted his private collection to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, bringing one of the most significant private collections of contemporary international art into public view. And he continues to extend his contribution to public art and education as director of Caldor Public Art Projects. We are thrilled to have John here tonight to talk about his ambitious first project, Wrapped Coast, and equally delighted to welcome Rebecca Coates as respondent. Rebecca Coates is the director of the Shepparton Art Museum and an established curator, writer, and academic, and a close colleague and friend and in her past role, also associate curator at ACCA. In 2013, Rebecca's PhD thesis explored the role of private foundations in a global contemporary art world, with a specific focus on Caldor Public Art projects as one of the earliest exponents of this form of patronage and support for contemporary art. Rebecca will be um, making a response to John's presentation and we'll join him in a short discussion after which time we'll have time for some questions from the audience. And my colleague, Adrienne Hayward, ACCA's Curator of Public Programs, will be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. So um, without further ado, will you please join me in welcoming John Caldor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope what you're about to hear is not what you were expecting. This is going to be more just reminiscence and recollections rather than a formal lecture. And um, as Max said, it's our 50th anniversary and this is the first time I'm really speaking about it publicly, so it's also a bit of a trial run. Um, as it's going to be just a series of thought bubbles, please free to interrupt me with any questions. Also, if I'm rambling too long, Rebecca or Max or somebody, please interrupt. So, what happened 50 years ago literally 
changed my life. Very, if you like, unexpectedly. Rebecca and I were just chatting beforehand and we're both great believers of karma. I'm sorry, I can't turn this way or that way, so can everybody hear me? Okay. But before I go into more details, I don't know if how many are aware, Christo and Jean-Claude were born in 1935 and they have the same birthday, the 13th of June. He was born in Bulgaria, she was born in Morocco, and they met in Paris. Christo escaped from Bulgaria in 1956. He first went to Prague, and when actually the Hungarian uprising happened, he escaped uh, from Prague uh, because the whole Iron Curtain countries were in a bit of a turmoil. He escaped to Vienna, stayed in Vienna, and studied at the Viennese Art Academy for one semester, and then got to Paris, penniless, without knowing anybody. But Christo has... He's not only a great artist, but um, he lands on his feet all the time. And he met a fellow Bulgarian who was a society hairdresser. And the society hairdresser took him under his wing. And Christo was trained as a very classical old-fashioned artist in Bulgaria. So he earned his living painting very pretty realistic portraits of society ladies who frequented the hairdresser. And he painted the portrait of Jean-Claude's mother, and that's how he met Jean-Claude, who was the daughter of a general who was in charge of the Ecole Militaire in Paris. And Jean-Claude was destined to marry one of the French officers, but again, fate took a different turn and they basically eloped. So that's the beginning of Christo's history. Um, a very brief, my history. We escaped from Hungary in 1948, and we literally walked across the border. We were stateless. We ended up in Paris. We didn't know where we would go. My parents didn't want to stay in Europe. So we applied all over the world for papers, for Latin America, uh, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and we didn't know how long we would be there. And as a 12 and a half years old, my parents thought I should go to school. And they put me into the local school. And as I couldn't speak French, they put me with four years olds. And after living through the Second World War and crossing borders in the middle of the night, 
I thought that was way beyond the dignity that I deserve. So I told them after a couple of days that this school is definitely not for me. And my mother, who has been to Paris a lot of times pre-war and was a very cultured lady, said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. You don't have to go to school, but I want to take you to every museum, every gallery, every monument in Paris, because we may never come back. We, were, we had no money. Travel wasn't the same in 1948 as it is now. And we knew we would end up somewhere far. And she wanted to make sure that I get some uh, memories of culture, of art. So that's when I got interested in art. So that's my history. I kept up my interest in art um, through my teenage years, and then I went to Europe to study, came back to Australia to work. Um, I was very fortunate that my first job was in Hobart with Claude Alcoso. I don't know if any of you know who he was, but the house he built, as Sir Roy Grant's house, is now the entrance to Mona. And he was very interested in art. So that was another karma moment, another inspiration. And then I worked for my parents and then ended up being part of a big public company, Dunlop. And I talked Dunlop into sponsoring art projects. And I always liked sculpture, and sculpture in the 60s wasn't very popular in Australia, and we started a sculpture scholarship, and we had three versions of it, in 1966 in Sydney, and George Baldessin won it. Then in Melbourne in 1967 was Mike Kitching, and 1968, Brett Flugelman won it. Then I approached the management of Dunlop, and I said, look, we had three Australians. Could I possibly invite somebody from overseas so that Australian artists see what is going on overseas? and said, do whatever you like, as long as you keep within budget. So, I saw from a document in, I think in 1967, Christo and Jean-Claude made an enormous balloon. And I thought that was interesting. And on my next overseas trip, I had to travel regularly because I was in the fashion business, uh, in the fabric, uh, looking what's the trends. I went into Leo Castelli Gallery, which was, again, I don't know if the name means anything to you, but Leo Castelli really started contemporary art in New York. He was the first to show Jesper Johns, Rauschenberg, etc. And I asked him, do you represent Christo? And he said, no, Christo works directly with collectors and here is his phone number. I mean, can you imagine that happening today that a dealer, that a young man walks into a gallery and he says, well, here's the phone number of the artist. 
So I didn't have my iPhone on me in 1967 or 1968. So I went into the first phone booth and I rang the number and Jean-Claude answered. And I said, I'm a young collector from Sydney, Australia, and I like your work. Could I come and see you? And she was very reluctant in the beginning. Oh, very busy. Well, but, but all right, come tomorrow at 11 o'clock. We've got half an hour for you. So I went to their home in Soho. Um, at that time, they lived illegally. Soho was then where artists started to squat in light industrial spaces, but illegally because it wasn't um, zoned residential. And um, they still, or he still lives in the same building, but he actually now owns the whole building. Um, and I, we really hit it off from the beginning. And I told him what I'm doing and what I'm collecting. Um, I hope these people won't walk out. Somebody just came in, well, my friends. Anyway, oh, there are seats there, thank you. Um, so half an hour turned into an hour or longer and I asked them would they come to Australia to give a lecture and have an exhibition. And Christo said, no, 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 I don't want to lecture. I don't want to give an exhibition. My English isn't good enough. I want you to find us a coastline to rap. <laughs> well, you don't get asked every day to find a coastline to rap. But then I took that seriously, as I said at the very beginning, literally changed my life. Both of them were so charismatic that they convinced me that the most important thing I could do is find them a coastline to rap. So as I say, the half an hour stretched out for basically most of the afternoon. They asked me if I wanted to share their lunch, which was remains of some sandwiches from the day before, which, which I did. And seriously, we're having an exhibition in September this year at the Art Gallery for our 50th anniversary. And I was very tempted to call the exhibition, it started with a stale sandwich. <laughs> but the Art Gallery didn't come around. <laughs> so I came back to Sydney and I started to systematically go around the coastline of uh, Sydney. And in those days, all the coastline was either army, navy, or government. Again, at that time, I had sort of almost shoulder-length hair, no beard, Hungarian accent, and I walked into those offices and said, I'd like to borrow a piece of your coastline. And they said, what for, mate? And I said, well, we want a temporary sculpture. 
And what kind of sculpture? Well, we actually want to wrap it. Well, they, act, they either laughed me out or threw me out. It just was hopeless. But I persevered and I went around the coastline, both the north part of Sydney Harbour and the south, and always rejected. But Christo kept pestering me, any luck, any luck, what have you done? He said, we want you to find the coastline, doesn't matter where, Australia is, has an enormous, I don't know how many thousands of kilometers of coast, doesn't have to be near the city, just find us a coastline. Because they tried in California and didn't get permission, and they, because Jean-Claude was French, um, they tried at the Riviera, didn't get permission. So I was, in a way, their hope of finding a coastline. I came across Prince Henry Hospital at Little Bay, which in those days was a gated hospital for tropical disease, as there was still leprosy those days in, in Sydney, in Australia. And the administrator there thought, well, if we would cover the insurance, the doctors, uh, patients, nurses might find it amusing. And they wanted to charge a small admission of, I think, five cents, which would go to them. That's the only time people had to pay to see a project of ours. Everything else, what we do, has been free since then. So that was the real breakthrough, getting permission. I mean, again, just to put it into context, Christo, when he does a project now, he has a whole team of engineers, uh, environmental, pro um, environmental project, environmental project, um, what do you call it, um, impact people, um, like 10, 15 people and many more when a project takes place. The same with us, we, when we do a project, we have a small team helping. In those days, Chris, it was Christo and Jean-Claude, and on my side, it was me. Um, and we said, well, how do we start? So again, through a friend who was a developer, he got somebody to, uh, we had to survey the site. Because it, now Little Bay is a very expensive suburb because it's a beach and not that far from Sydney. In those days, it was a hospital and the actual area that Christo wrapped behind it was a, um, a rubbish dump for soil filling. They wanted to build it up for eventual golf courses. So it was quite desolate. So we had a chap survey, and, which he did, and then he said, well, what are you going to do? We said, oh, we're going to wrap it. And he said quite seriously, well, once it's wrapped, how are you going to send it away? <laughs> true, true story. Um, let me try and stay on track. So, okay, we had the site, we had it surveyed, 
and it was enormous. Um, absolutely enormous. Well, I can start with slides, but let me just preamble a bit more. So we tried, or I had to try and find the right fabric. And we wanted to find some kind of a fabric that would last for about three months by the time we start to finish. And I went looking for some kind of man-made fibers, um, who would stand the elements because we get storms there and tides and um, had to be strong enough. And I kept sending these fabrics for Christo for approval. Do you like this? Do you like the color? And finally we settled on a soil erosion fabric which was strong enough but porous enough to let the air through and let um, birds and bugs, etc., survive. We also settled on a rope that sailors used on boats. And then there was the question of how do we secure it uh, into the rocks. And again, after a lot of experimentations and lots of begging and uh, trials, we came up on ramset guns that would shoot into, um, into the rocks. I mean, again, today, I doubt if we would be allowed. I mean, we, I don't think we ever had a, D, a DA or anything like that, because the hospital gave us permission and it was their land. So Christo and Jean-Claude arrived on the early September with their son Cyril, and it was really a family affair. Uh, Cyril stayed with us and went to school with my daughter. Um, it was a handful. Uh, he, still, he still is. Um, and then we had to recruit people, and we wanted as many volunteers as possible. And lots of people promised, but it was really hard getting commitments for people to stay. Our savior, in effect, was the son of Sir Roy Grounds, Mark Grounds, who was a lecturer at Sydney University. And he said to his students that working with Christo for a month, you'd learn more than I could teach you in a year and he sent his architectural students to help us. And a couple of those students who were going to be architects became artists. The best known of them is Iman Stillers, who actually won the gold medal for architecture, but decided that he wants to be an artist instead. And he still keeps in touch with Christo, and they remain good friends. The only really paid workers were the mountain climbers who had to scale the rocks. But again, and maybe I'm going to jump but show you a few images and then I'll continue. Am I going all right so far? 
Nobody's asking questions. Am I going okay? Yes. I beg your pardon? Uh, seven when he, he came. So I want to just show you a few of his early works, just to put it into context. He started wrapping bottles and cans. And they're now all in museums and galleries. Also, one of their famous work is um, an iron curtain. They barricaded um, one of the little lanes, uh, Rue Visconti in Paris. And Jean-Claude was a very pretty girl. And she held up the police long enough for people to see because they didn't ask permission, and I think they had it up for a day before they were forced to dismantle it. This was the work that I referred to. I saw that in a magazine, which inspired me to contact Christo and Jean-Claude. This is the first major work that he did, wrapping the Kunsthalle in Bern, in Bern, yes, and that's when he met well-known um, Swiss curator Harold Zeman, who became world famous. He really changed the art of curating, and on Christo's advice, became our second project. Um, I'll show you some of his monumental projects. This is the running fence, which is really my favorite. It was so beautiful. It was in uh, Sonoma County in California, and it went right through the landscape into the sea. All his projects are temporary, and one of the things I'll tell you in a minute, so pay attention, but I'll show you another images first. This was absolutely beautiful, uh, surrounded islands in Miami. I mean, it was like a Monet water lilies, absolutely beautiful. Um, just as an aside, being friends with Christo helps you to see projects firsthand. So he asked me, do I want to go up with his photographer in a helicopter to see it? And I said, yes, of course. So it was a, this was quite a few years ago. It was a very small open helicopter. I sat back to back to the photographer. The pilot tipped the helicopter so that the photographer could shoot all the islands. And for about 25 minutes, all I could see were seagulls and clouds. I didn't see one surrounded island. This was actually very beautiful. I mean, Christo and Jean-Claude are great. They wrapped Pont Neuf in Paris, the oldest bridge, and it became like a jewel, so French. The falls, everything was really quite magical. The Reichstag, the rep Reichstag, again, one of the things about Christo and Jean-Claude is that they 
never let go. It took Christo from 1971 till 1995 to get permission. And it had to go to the German parliament and the parliament voted on it. It was the first artwork that ever went to the German parliament to get permission and he got permission. Now, everything that Christo and Jean-Claude do, they finance themselves. And if people ask them, how can you help? They say, buy our artwork. They never accept any donations. And I was on site for this for about three weeks, um, helping Christo translate German. And quite a few big offers came from companies who wanted to have their name close to the Reichstag for enormous sums. And they said no, absolutely out of question. Another one, the walkways in New York, there were 7,000, oh, it's not here. Again, from 79 to 205, he kept asking all the Lord Mayors of New York for permission, and he kept being rejected. It was all, only when Bloomberg came in, he got permission. And every walkway in Central Park had these gates, and again, it's a fact that a billionaire from Texas came up and said, I have a ranch and I want to put all your gates there. I read in the paper that it cost you $28 million to do this project. I'll pay you the $28 million. And Christian Jean-Claude said, well, thank you, but no thank you. These were meant for Central Park and will be destroyed at the end of the project. So they're really very focused. One of the things that I have learned over the years, that one thing great artists have in common is single-mindedness, a focus, but also a generosity of spirit. I think the better the artist, the more generous they are in spirit. The floating piers recently in Italy, again, I think in two weeks, close to two million people visited and created absolute traffic chaos because the access to the lake was very difficult and it was to be open 24 hours, they had to close from midnight to six to clean it because there were so many people. This is the latest, the Mastaba in London, which is a scale model for one he wants to do near Dubai, near Abu Dhabi. And that's his life's ambition 
to do an enormous mastaba made out of oil drums the size of two, um, two sporting fields, two football fields, and higher than the Great Pyramid. Um, and he's been working on it for 30 years. This is the model for it. But the next project in April 2020, he got permission to wrap the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, which will be a wonderful coup for him. Um, I can share with you something confidential, which I'm sure you all keep. Um, he's having an exhibition at the Pompidou in Paris next April. And the director asked him, could you do something, there's a plaza in front of the Pompidou, could you do a sculpture or a wrapping? And Christo said, no, the only thing that I'm interested in doing is I had a drawing and collage in 1962, of wrapping the, um, the um, Arc de Triomphe, and that's the only thing that I'm interested to do never thinking that they would take him seriously. But the director of the Pompidou is a close friend of the man in charge of all the monuments, who went to Macron, and Paris needs a bit of good publicity at the moment, and he got permission. So if you're interested to see a crystal work next April in Paris. Christo and Jean-Claude in Australia. This he did in Melbourne in 1969, wool bales at the National Gallery. Did anybody see that? Anybody see it? <coughs> Little Bay. Anybody see Little Bay? One? Okay. Good, I'm glad you saw it. <laughs> He also made some collages for other possible works, the Wrapped Opera House and the Wrapped Harbour Bridge. The way Christo works is like an architect. Before a project is done, he does a lot of drawings, scale models, collages. And these, these are the ones he sells. And through these, the projects are realized. This is a scale model. This is the rope that was used. This is the fabric. That's me without a beard and Krista. Now, you know, the gods of art were really looking after us as no, nobody wore a harness, nobody wore any helmets, and look, just people hanging off rocks. Uh, and nobody but nobody got hurt. Christo did something with his shoulder, and the doctor put it into bandages, 
And he said, well, Christo repped little by I repped Christo. <laughs> um, I mean, look, people just standing there. And it was like a moonscape because all the rocks were covered. The fabric shimmered in the sun. It was absolutely beautiful. Where people are standing, uh, that was where the rubbish was dumped. I mean, look at the scale. Um, several years ago, when I was looking for a site for Gregor Schneider for a project on a beach, I went to look at Little Bay and I said, John, you must have been out of your cotton-picking mine. I mean, it's just enormous. Look at it. Now, you also have to put it into context because today there's a lot going on. But in 1969, there wasn't what in Sydney we have vivid, you know, you have the Biennales here, you have White Nights, you have lots and lots of things going on. It was a much simpler scene in Australia. And it really um, was a shock. There was a lot of criticism. I forgot to say something which I But also, in many ways, it put Australia on the international map for, for contemporary art. As we had a lot of press, uh, there was couple of films made which went internationally. Um, what I didn't say, that when, the nota no, when all the press started in the beginning, Dunlop, for whom I was working, said, John, we don't want this kind of press, we don't want to be associated with this. You either stop it or you do it on your own. And I was far too committed. I said, I do it on my own. And we begged, we borrowed, but somehow we managed to do it. Well, after it was all over, relationships between Dunlop and I weren't the warmest. And after a few months, I thought, if I can organize the wrapping of a coastline, I can probably start a small business on my own, which I did. Um, It's usually people who succeed in business who start collecting art. With me, it was the other way around. Uh, I succeeded in art, which gave me the courage to start my own business. What else can I tell you? Well, maybe, maybe I'll show you a video which summarizes our projects till now. One thing I want to say, if any of you come to Sydney in May, on the 3rd of May, we're opening a very interesting project at Carriage Works with an American artist of Pakistani background, Asad Raza. It's opening to the public on the 3rd of May and it'll run till the 18th May. I'll show you this video, which is quite funny. How do I do that? I do what? You do it. Good. 
Jonathan Jones. All the time, all the effort. Would John Caldor go through with this again? Most certainly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. going to make a quick start um, and um, I think that we've seen with those images and that last work the enormous legacy I think that these Caldor public art projects has, have really left and are contributing to Australia but um, while John, John just comes back I thought that um, I first of all I particularly wanted to thank Max and for all the ACA team really for this initiative of exhibition histories it's something that's very dear to my heart and it's great to be here uh, in ACCA that has played such a pivotal role um, pre-being here and obviously in this building uh, to contributing to some of these really extraordinary projects. 
Um, I think that the series is also very long overdue. Um, we've seen a number of recent projects, as Max has said, uh, rethinking exhibi exhibition histories in a range of different forms, you know, in exhibition form, of course, um, but also it's been part of a broader sort of art historical, rethinking the role of art history in a contemporary context that I think has shifted our thinking and the role that that can play and um, what, an, what a contemporary art historian can be as well. I must say, John, in the... Um, in the truth and narrative side of things, when I first told you that I was doing a PhD and I was here as a curator, and I was looking at the history of exhibition history, or looking at this role of exhibition histories and um, this sort of what I saw as a really interesting development in the contemporary art world, you said, what on earth for? So <laughs> I think it's very fitting that 50 years, um, and here we are tonight. So I think the interest in the subject really is global, and I think that's something that you talked about particularly in relation to these projects. Um, I think it reflects on a rethinking and a valuing of art history, but in the broadest possible sense and within a contemporary context and for us here and now. We've seen that there's been this proliferation of publications. The After All series has been a particularly important one, and what it's done is actually rethought the margins and rethought the centre. So we've seen uh, exhibitions, biennials in Cuba, we've seen feminist histories, and I think that that's part of our role, to rethink that history and what gets left behind for us to acknowledge. We've, of course, also seen um, Fiden series, exhibitions that make art history, uh, and more recently, you know, Charles Green and Anthony Gardner's biennials, triennials, and documenters. This project plays a key part in all of that. It's not any one of those, and yet it plays a really pivotal part. Um, and I think that what's really fascinating for this project is that for the first time, Australia, from being the periphery, became the centre. So I think um, when I was talking to Max and talking to the ACA team, they said, you've got five minutes to respond. And I went, well, OK. But there are a couple of things that I do want to talk on, and I think that will lead into questions. So I'll frame it with this, and then we're going to really give it over to ask questions, because I know that there are lots of people who have got things that they want to know and talk about in the audience. And it's a great opportunity with John here to um, speak to the man. So. In thinking back on the work that I did on Wrapped Coast and, and Caldor Public Art projects more generally, the thing that really stuck to, you know, came to mind when I was reflecting on this opportunity is what impact did the project have on then an emerging cultural Australian landscape? That's the real question, I think. You know, we can look at it as an artwork, we can look at it as a moment, but what impact did it have and how do we assess that? So I think we need to break it down into a few various sectors for collectors, and John did talk about the fact that he was a collector, and that was, you know, how he first met uh, Christo, and that role of Sonnabend and role of um, Leo Castelli in, in New York, a very different place, played a pivotal role. But it was the first site-specific temporary contemporary art project presented in Australia. And, of course, as John says, by a private foundation. It gave him the impetus to start something that we now see has been going for 50 years. So. It created a new model. We're very familiar with this term of private foundation now, but at that point, it was something that was formed to actually do what John wanted to do, which was work with artists in a new and quite exciting way in spaces that were outside of the institution. So I think that that's something that is an enormous legacy that we go on to today. I would suggest that it also redefined what the role of a collector was, John. And in that sense, you were collecting the uncollectible. So instantly, 
all of your, and you say the art world is a small place, and you say that the, um, whether it's in Australia or whether it's internationally, it was a different place. But instantly, by collecting the uncollectible, by starting to build this legacy, the work that was happening there was different from every other collector then and for a long time to come. For the artists and the arts community, and you've talked on this, John, I think it was, it was enormous. You've talked about Imance Tillers, the fact that people changed their lives, um, the fact that people did different things, and um, there was only one person, I think, here who actually experienced it, but it's the sort of thing that if you're part of one of those experiences, you don't forget. So this sort of cultural mythology, I think, that happens is because it was a quite transformative experience. You remember who you were with, where you were, and probably what was happening with the weather too. You can't disassociate that experience from the artwork in the moment. For Tom McCulloch, who went on, who travelled um, and came to come and have a look at it and was so involved as director of the, um, the Mildura Sculpture Triennial, it was a formative experience. Uh, and he talks about the impact that this work had and how it affected what he then did in Mildura, in central Victoria of all places. But that was his ambition. So it's about ambition. It's about striving for something that is, you know, really, really unattainable and giving it a go, karma, as you call it. For institutions at the time, I think we've also got to think about that. Why is it that an individual who's got a lot of drive, a lot of ambition, could do something outside of an institution? What were these institutions like? So there were challenges presenting these sorts of projects in institutions, often due to staffing and often due to space. So Daniel, you've got to remember Daniel Thomas, who's one of our great curators, was the first curator at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, few galleries had spaces available to do these sorts of projects. Most of the Art Gallery of New South Wales was closed at various stages when you were looking at, thinking about doing these projects. So even if there'd been the space, which there wasn't, even if you'd had the curators and the staff to do it, to work in this way, which often there wasn't, then of course you've got the boards and you've got this perception of, is it the right thing to do? And we all know that sometimes that's a little difficult to get through. So you've got to have determination and drive. There was a group of young curators, Daniel Thomas, Francis McCarthy, who's now Francis Lindsay, Bernice Murphy, Robert Lindsay. All of these people played a role. And um, <laughs> there was a quote at the time which noted that these employers placed way too much emphasis on traditional things like the Archibald Prize to give them scope to experiment in this way. Um, we now look at the Archibald Prize and what it does in, in its programming a little differently. But, you know, institutions at their stage were very different things. I think that point that you made about the wool work, um, Christo's wool work, within an institution is quite significant. At the time, nothing was acquired from that. So all of those works from, that Christo made in the lead up to that, nothing went into the collection. So again, how do we document, how do we know the significance of projects if they don't form part of collections and institutions? But it's the bit that I think is really interesting, and particularly in my Shepparton context at the moment I'm particularly interested in, what impact did this have for wider publics? So for the non-art world, for the non-art passionate people, for all, of, for all of the people that wouldn't necessarily come to something like this. Um, the Reverend Roger Bush, you probably remember this, John, railed against the project on 2GB, and I notice they're still doing the same thing today. 
implying that the products for the company or companies that sponsors this project should be boycotted. So John has made light of the outrage. There, there was an environmental concern and that this was going to degrade the coast and no matter how many times John said that it was going to be returned to its pristine state, you know, these were the legitimate concerns, but the concerns that um, were put uh, in your way. Over 250,000 people came. I think even Creative Victoria would say that that's a success in our, in our economically driven day. However, what's really great is that a note in, the article, in an article in the Herald said, every taxi driver in Sydney knew exactly where Little Bay was. In my book, that's success. So, there's no doubt that the time was right, John, karma, whatever you call it, the time was right. Australia was changing, and I think that that was also quite an important thing. So it's worth putting this project and this ambitious, really ambitious vision, I think, into context a little bit. 1967, as well as the Opera House that we had, so this fantastic piece of architecture that was known around the world. 1967, you had the rec referendum recognising Indigenous Australians as citizens. The Vietnam War was still in people's memories. Uh, and you had subsequent arrivals of refugees coming. So this whole history that, that John talked about of refugees and the impact and the role that they played on a developing nation, you had a similar change and Australia was starting to look to Asia. Um, you had the creation of the Sydney Biennale in 1973, the establishment of the Visual Arts Board, VAB, in 1973, and that was set one of seven boards that started to then have this potential, if you want, um, to support in a very small way, I might add, in its early days, um, projects of various kinds. Prior to that, there was no support of this kind um, for projects inside or outside of the institution. And then, of course, you had Australia's national institutions coming of age, and you had the development of the National Gallery of Australia. So let's think 1973, because some of those images that John captured of the projects are happening at this time. Uh, and you had, of course, Whitlam's um, famous, uh, you had the acquisition of Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles um, for an exorbitant amount of money. Um, that hit the front page too. Uh, and um, you had politics and politicians being interested in what was happening in the arts. In 1973, what was the image on Gough Whitlam's Christmas card for that year? An artwork. So I think that there was, a, there was a something in the water. There was a change. And I think that sometimes the right thing happens at the right time uh, that, that contributes in part to, this, um, to these possibilities. So I wanted to open it up, John, really, um, and really ask you, the question of what impact this had for you. We've heard a little bit about the impact, it was the impetus for starting that project, but where it's 50 years, and there is a time now, I think, to think about the impact that you think this had on an emerging Australian cultural landscape, and the way that we can then think about that going forward. So I'll come and join you over there, and we can continue this conversation. So the question is what impact it had what on I you. think the impact Yes, what, what you think the impact was. Well, one of the things that pleases me, can you hear me? Yeah. One of the things that pleases me most is that 
while all our projects are, are temporary, they somehow end up in our cultural memory. And for example, a lot of our projects, I don't know about in Victoria, but they're on the New South Wales HSE curriculum that young people today are studying Christo or Sol Lewis or Gilbert and George. So the projects that only lasted a couple of weeks uh, are still alive today. And that's really what pleases me most. And in line with our forthcoming exhibition at the Art Gallery in Sydney, we have started to collect what we call living archives. More by good luck than by design, we kept archives from the very beginning of letters, drawings, things that we corresponded with artists before a project. But what we have been doing now is reaching out to the community of the public who saw our past projects and what they remember about it. And we're getting some amazing feedback. So if any of you saw our past projects, uh, please contact us with your memory. So, John, of course, you talked a little bit about the um, impact of this project and how it led into the next ones. And I think those first seven projects are particularly interesting. They, they, for me, they have a sort of particular momentum. Um, and they happened in a relatively short period of time, from 1969 to 77. So you said that... Um, from knowing Christo and having the conversations with Christo, you then invited Harold Zeman, of course. Um, we now know, you know, one of the most influential uh, exhibition makers, certainly of this gener of our generation and time. From that, of course, you had Gilbert and George in 73, Charlotte Mormon and Nam June Pike in 1975, uh, Sol LeWitt and then Richard Long in 1977. Um, how do you think... Um, we talk a lot about the impact of this work, and particularly this Christo Chris and John Claude's work. How do you think we look at that work from outside Australia? Well, the artists that you have mentioned were really just starting their career then in the 70s. Christo, uh, Gilbert and George, Richard Long, Nam Jim Paik, they were all just at the beginning of their career, but they have now become really masters of contemporary art. So in a way, what they have done in Australia is part of their career. So I suppose we're part of their career. One of the things that I think you did in those early ones was, um, uh, and I think that image, uh, the, the, the short video that you showed slightly captured it, there was a real aspect of showmanship to these projects. Um, you had the ABC radio, uh, ABC television crew following Christo and Jean-Claude. There was a moment by moment, there was a great sense of excitement about these projects. 
And of course, the images that we've seen, uh, have, which have become really quintessential, are unbelievably fabulous images. Is that something you realised at the time? Is that something that the artists told you you had to do as part of a temporary project? Did, is that just your uh, innate businessman yeah. knowledge? No, it's a combination, I suppose, of the artist and the times and what we were doing. But not all artists were sort of showmen. I mean, Saul Lewitt was a very quiet artist. Richard Long was a very quiet artist. Um, what my mission was from the very beginning is to bring to Australia artists who represented the latest trends in contemporary art, who could show the Australian artist and Australian public of what is happening. So, you know, I mean, just jumping ahead, three, four years ago, we had Xavier Leroy, a dancer and choreographer, do a project for us. Well, if 20 years ago they would have said you're going to do a project with a dancer, I would have said, you're out of your mind, we're about visual arts. But I felt that Xavier Leroy represented something really important in contemporary culture. So I asked him to do a project for us. So, I mean, the great advantage of a small organization like us, that we're not beholden to any director, any bureaucracy, uh, we can do what we feel is of the moment. So that brings up another point that we touched on earlier, this notion of temporality. Do you think, I mean, it's something that I've probably learned from you and I often use it in a local council context and say, look, it's only temporary. It, it won't happen forever. But do you think you've got away with an awful lot more by making... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But if you have permanent things, the whole... Everything is different. How you build it, how you get permission, how you maintain it, it's... It's totally different. And I suppose the challenge for you then is um, how do you capture a legacy of temporary projects? Well, just by films today, by videos, by photographs, by, by memory. And that was really something that came about around the 40th anniversary, wasn't it? When you really started to capture that sort of history and the legacy of those projects. Yes, what was interesting, a bit of showing off, it's getting late. Uh, when we had our 40th exhibition at the Art Gallery, Tony Bond, who was then deputy director, some of you may know him, came to me and said, do you realize you're the oldest contemporary art project organization in the world. And I said, no. I mean, in 1969, we didn't set out to be the oldest. Um, it just happened that way. Were there any other examples or anything that was particularly formative when you were starting to think about these series of projects that created an institution no, without walls? I, I didn't think of a series of projects. I just wanted the rep course to succeed. And then I said, oh, this is good. Let's do another one. And then we did another one. 
and then we did another one. So when did you realise that it was something more than just doing a project after a project, that it was something else? Last week. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm, I'm not that logical. I don't really, <laughs> you know, it's, oh, I suppose, well, to be serious, when I closed my business in 2001 and the government gave us non-profit status, um, so any donation is tax deductible, no, no plug, um, we had to have a board and we had to be more formal. So I suppose then I realized that uh, this is more serious than what I was doing till then. So I'm just going to, one last question, and then I'm going to give it over to the audience. But we've talked about the impact for institutions and for collectors and for many for our audiences, art world and not. For the artists, you've talked a little about, about that long-standing relationship that you've built up with um, uh, Christian Jean-Claude, you know, over many, many, many years and many exhibitions and many projects. What do you think your, the opportunity to come to Australia to do a project of this kind offered them that was different? I think what we can offer artists is the opportunity to do something that they couldn't do somewhere else, the opportunity most of the time to do something outside a gallery, to find interesting sites, whether it's in a church or in some convict building. Uh, brick kilns or in a park um, which is interesting for an artist rather than among the four walls of a gallery and we make it possible to for them to do something which they would like to realize but um, either museums can't do it or don't want to do it answer your question? No? It yeah. does. It does. It probably opens up more. So I'm going to open it up to the audience because I'm sure that there will be some questions from the audience. Yep. Hi, John. Um, Hi. As you know, I'm a big fan of your mother's work and I've collected a fair bit of it. Um, she's a big inspiration for my fashion work. So what I'd never asked you when I first met you was, I would love to know what Vera thought of your Wrapped Coast project, because I know she wasn't sure of an opinion. She thought I was crazy. I was thinking that. What did she think? She got to meet Christo and Jean-Claude as well. What was her thoughts of all this? Because this would have been so different to what her experience was. They got on well. I mean, Christo and Jean-Claude were very charming. Uh, the nature of the work that you support and was in that video is obviously very temporary and public and that's important to you and I feel like it changes the way the public interacts with it and that your vision is more about giving people an emotive response. Do you find that that is something that's been a connection, like a line throughout everything you've been involved with since this rap project? An emotive response? Yeah, I mean you're putting the art in a public space for you know, like you were talking about, people outside the art world can see it, can respond to it, and all the public works that you, you put around Sydney. Well, you know, projects like ours 
people fall up on it. You know, if you go to a gallery, you intend to go there expecting to see art. With the way we do projects in different locations, we get lots of people who are non-art people. Maybe I can tell you very briefly a story. We did a project what, 12 years ago or more in Bondi Beach with Gregor Schneider, a German artist. He did 21 cells. And I don't know if you people know Bondi. There's a promenade. And I was standing on the promenade watching. And a young man in roller skates come by and says, what's this shit, mate? <laughs> and I said, this shit is a work of art. And he said, no, it's not. I'm an artist. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't know you were an artist. You must be right. So you get all sorts of reactions. But, you know, I love being evangelical and converting people to art. And I have many friends who don't share my love of contemporary art, who thinks that I'm slightly crazy, but they say when they travel overseas, oh, I went to a museum and I saw this and this artist and it reminded me of what you have. So in the end it gets through. But John, many of those projects also took place within the confines later on of the institution as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, it wasn't it, in that sort of period of time. There were a lot of projects. Charlotte Mormon was also at the front of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, South Australia. Richard Long took place, uh, obviously, in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Solar Witt in the NGV, and also in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So it's building an awareness, I think, as well as those that the the publics that will come upon it and I think that's quite different I have nothing against galleries but I'm excited by finding um, spaces that are interesting but there are some artists whose work lends itself to galleries so, it's... so while we're asking for another question um, what, did the, what did artists were all artists in the art world happy with your um, decision to bring international artists into Australia rather than working with Australian artists? Was there an expectation that Australia should fit within a broader context so it should be Australian and international? Well, we did Australian. We did um, the Australian accent in 95 when we took Australian artists to New York. Uh, we did... Uh, recently, Jonathan Jones, mm. but with all international artists, I make sure that they meet local artists, and very often we have local artists helping them. In fact, the project that I mentioned that's opening on the 3rd of May, Asad Raza is working with five Australian artists in the project, and that's something that I asked him that he should work collaboratively with a number of Australian artists. I think we've got time for one more question. David. Thank, thanks so much for your presentation, John, and also to Rebecca for her response. John, you, you talked, interestingly, about ideas of risk, particularly with um, the Rap Coast project, and I'm interested in how your, 
your attitude to risk has shifted over the 50 years. I mean, it's a remarkable project to have people hanging off the side of a, a structure with zero or negligible health and safety constraints and is, is a huge source of inspiration to many of us who've made public art projects like that. But I'm wondering how, how your attitude to risk has changed over time. Have you, have you continued to feel you need to push against the bureaucratisation and the constraints that councils and the like have continually put on practice? Or just maybe talk a little bit about how that shifted for you. Well, bureaucracy is one of my great, what shall I say, uh, challenges. But I certainly wouldn't have people hanging off rocks now without any um, protection. And unfortunately, as you grow up, you get less risk averse. Um, I still like to do unusual things, uh, but um, you know, if you have an organization, even a small one, you have to be more mindful, you have to be... Also at times, um, you can't get away with things now, what you could get away then, you know, getting permission, things like that, environmental concerns. There's much more restraint. So rather, um, I don't want to end on a, on a cooler note, um, but there is no doubt that we are living in a much more risk-averse, um, bureaucratised time. And nonetheless, I think we're seeing a series of still quite extraordinary projects that engage publics and audiences and experiences and really great artists doing extraordinary projects in continually new and interesting ways. I mean, I don't want to be negative. I keep plugging this new project. If you come and see it... No, that's I, enough. No more, no more. It's, <laughs> it's certainly different. So, John, I think... Thank you so much for coming this evening. Thank you for starting what I'm sure will be the beginning of, a 50, of your 50th um, anniversary celebrations in style in Melbourne. It's only fitting, we would say, as the centre of the art world, no, except, no. For Shepparton, except for Shepparton, except no, for Shepparton. No, no, I'm leaving to catch a plane. No, 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 stop. But I think you are absolutely right. You've talked about karma. You've talked about there's something in the water, um, whether it was just not knowing what you were getting into and just going for it, whatever it was, there is no doubt that um, Christo's rap, Christo and John Claude's Rap Coast really significantly put Australia on the map. It ensured through those fantastic photographs that we have now that um, no one will... It, it could have happened somewhere else in the world, but it didn't, and it's a part of, it's, it's a part of our sort of knowledge of what Australia looks like and can be, I think, that is now embedded within a cultural history forevermore, both in Australia and internationally. Um, it is an extraordinary project uh, that has set us up, I think, for ways that we can do things differently. So thank you very much, I John. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.